You are listening to Spacetime Mind, a podcast by two philosophy professors, Richard Brown and Pete Mandick, who talk about philosophy, science, and all sorts of other stuff. Please be advised that this podcast contains strong language and abstract ideas not suitable for all intelligent life forms. There's something called the in-brain theory, detectives. No, oh, that's, that's over my head. Space. Mind. Mind. Space. Somehow, somehow, do a Jedi mind meld. In space! So hello everybody, welcome to Space Time Mind. I'm Pete Mandick from the Philosophy Department at William Patterson University in New Jersey. With me as always is the greatest co-host in the multiverse. <laughs> and I've checked. <laughs> I see. Yes, I'm Richard Brown from uh, CUNY LaGuardia. Hello. <laughs> and we have a super, super, super special guest. I've said that before with only two supers, but this is the first triple <laughs> super guest. And our first physicist, Sean Carroll, has agreed to uh, subject himself to our techniques. And That's right. Bring it on. I'm looking forward to it. Probably everybody knows everything about you already, but it's worth mentioning that you've written uh, more than a few books. Um, Two recent ones are this uh, 2010 book, From Eternity to Here, about the problem of time's arrow, right. and The Particle at the End of the Universe from 2012 about the search for the, the Higgs boson. And exactly right, yes. Sean has got all sorts of stuff on the web. Sean's a very active popularizer of uh, science, and you can find all sorts of things on his website at preposterousuniverse.com. And there's like a, a bazillion YouTube videos also. And we'll, we'll have links to all this stuff when uh, the audio podcast finally comes out. But anyways, welcome to Space Time Mind, Sean. Thanks. Thanks for having me. It's uh, always fun to do something a little bit different. So, <laughs> Yeah, it's nice to have you on, too. I'm looking forward to having this discussion. I should probably mention that uh, one thing that puts you close in our hearts is that you are uh, an out-of-the-closet, philosophy-friendly physicist. I am. I've come out of the closet, yes. Uh, and, you know, it's a shame that we need to distinguish between the philosophy-friendly physicists and the others, but, uh, you know, it's it's just a reflection of the fact that in many ways a lot of academics are anti-intellectual in some ways. You know, they like their thing, but then right. other things they don't like. I mean, In fact, I remember when I wrote on my blog sort of a pro-philosophy, you know, you physicists should stop making fun of philosophy. <laughs> Brian Leiter on his blog said, you know, I kind of like it when physicists say stupid things because it shows the intellectual shallowness of that field. So, <laughs> you know, the prejudices go in all directions. Prejudices uh, go in all directions. That's absolutely true. But it's really cool also that not only are you philosophy friendly, but you're actually involved in trying to uh, jumpstart a whole branch or discipline, sub-area of philosophy, philosophy of cosmology. Yeah, that's right. I think... Um, you know, this it's a slightly uh, twisted and embarrassing story, actually, and in, in we can go into it because um, 
the actual reason why the philosophy of cosmology is something that has a name and is being discussed right now is not because of me or any of my friends, but because of the Templeton Foundation. And I'm not a fan of the Templeton Foundation, but uh, some of my friends are less against it than I am, and they're more than willing to take the large amounts of money that the Templeton yeah. Foundation is willing to give out. And it turns out that the Templeton Foundation thought that the philosophy of cosmology was a promising sounding area, so they basically said, you know, some guys come up to us and say, we would like to do the philosophy of cosmology, we will shower them with money. Ah. <laughs> and thus, a new field is born. <laughs> ah. <laughs> yeah, you know, I have these kind of misgivings about the Templeton Foundation as well, and it seems... You almost can't turn around any now uh, recently without seeing that their money somewhere, whether it's in physics or philosophy. Because um, I work in like philosophy of consciousness as well, and so they've right. also got tender all over the place. Area. Yeah. And you know, I've had debates about this with with friends of mine. And one thing that I hear them say a lot is, "Hey, how is this any different than the the government funding this kind of research?" You know, DARPA, for instance. DARPA mm -hmm. funds a lot of research in the consciousness um, and artificial intelligence and related areas. Does that mean that you know, we shouldn't take their money. I mean, money's got to come from somewhere for <clears throat> science, especially, right? So, do yeah, you think there's think, a, like, do you think DARPA is any worse than Templeton, or are you? Yes, yeah, more interesting than talking about the Templeton Foundation. But uh, yeah, I, you know, I do think that there's a difference. I think that it's there are government agencies that I would not feel happy taking money from. Uh, so, you know, I think that these are all complicated issues that people have to work out for themselves, which is why I'm not against participating in events that are put on by organizations that take money from the Templeton Foundation. That's a level of purity that I don't quite aspire to. I don't ask the Templeton Foundation myself for money from them. And, it, yeah. and you know, I don't have anything out for them. I think that many people who work for Templeton and, and give out the money, their heart's in the right place. They're pro-science. It's not like they're creationists or anything like that. But they are trying to blur the boundaries between science and religion. They are trying to make a more theological or religious approach to these big ultimate questions seem more respectable and one of their strategies is to mix it up with work done by respectable philosophers and scientists and so right. I don't want to add my respectability such as it is uh, to that effort. Right and that's something different than say uh, the, the government or other funding agencies might have in mind so they're looking for useful benefits from the research but not so much which may be questionable you know if they're if they're using, you know, work in quantum cryptography to further their spying abilities and or, you know, hide their nefarious activities in Guantanamo Bay or wherever it is, then that's not a great thing, but that's different than this kind of big picture view that Templeton is uh, really trying to um, legitify something which doesn't seem like it should be legitified. I think maybe is, is this... Yeah, that's right. And, and some people will think it should be more legitimate than it is, but uh, it's not my thing, and so I want to make that clear. And with the, when it comes to the government, I'm, I'm quite confident that none of the research I've ever done to date in my life will be of any help in, <laughs> at all to the government doing anything nefarious. So uh, there I'm on very firm ground. <laughs> So let me uh, let me ask you a question that's uh, kind of in this domain. Why um, why uh, be friendly to philosophy but not theology? Yeah, uh, because I don't think God exists, but <laughs> but I do think that uh, uh, various philosophical questions are interesting and important and and benefit from the insight of uh, professional philosophers. You know, I'm not I'm not hostile. 
I want, I want to be very careful. I'm not hostile to theologians or philosophers of religion. You know, I went to a nice Catholic university, Villanova, and I took many, many classes on religious studies and theology. Uh, and some of my best friends really believe in this stuff, but I don't believe in this stuff. So, you know, I, I think that uh, it's not that I'm hostile to it. I just don't want to be involved in it. And, I, you know, I think that in this day and age, in the 21st century, we've learned enough about how the world works at a fundamental level to not take seriously the hypothesis that there's an extra supernatural realm out there or a theistic component to our ultimate explanation of the world. I want to say that you know science really has taught us something, and, and you know it, it matters too. I think that it's it's it would it's kind of amazing to me to think that. 2,000 or even 500 years ago, we had some ideas about the fundamental nature of reality, and these ideas have moved forward to the present day essentially untouched by progress in science. That doesn't seem very likely to me. But uh, I, I hate to keep pu pushing this because I don't actually believe it. But yeah, go ahead. Suppose, <laughs> suppose a philosophy hater said, everything that you just said right now about uh, theological or religious-based approaches, you could equ equally say about philosophy, that there's been thousands of years of lack of progress, methods that, you know, really haven't done anything to justify themselves. And so similarly, you should just just stick with the science and, and you're wasting your time talking to these philosophers. Yeah, I think there has been progress. I think there's been progress in theology and in philosophy. In theology, what greater progress could you imagine than figuring out that God does not exist? You know, that's a, a, a certain <laughs> kind of progress that is, is quite concrete. In philosophy, you know, I think that the one of the the single biggest mistake that scientists take when when developing an attitude toward philosophy is to judge philosophy by how useful it is to science. Mm -hmm. It's a different realm of endeavor. So, you know, I think it's unfair to philosophy to say, well, what has it done for the typical working scientist? Now, as a matter of fact, to me, who is an untypical working scientist, philosophy has been very useful. I've gotten a lot of ideas about philosophy of physics from uh, about physics rather from philosophers of physics because there's a very specific kind of philosophy of physics that is more or less indistinguishable in its goals from just doing physics right it's just right. that philosophy departments are a little bit more sympathetic to to foundations of quantum mechanics statistical mechanics or for that matter cosmology Right. So I think that you know we're all trying to figure out how the universe works in a fairly intellectually similar way, but there's a slight difference in what department you're in. So I think that's just completely irrelevant. Uh, but you know there's there's also progress in good old-fashioned philosophy. There's progress in moral and ethical philosophy. There's progress in metaphysics. So you know the progress is harder, harder to judge and harder to make. But mm -hmm. to say that there's no progress is just to not pay attention very carefully. Uh, it's interesting you bring up the, the points about usefulness because a, a lot of times usefulness can cut both ways with, with respect to, to science. There, there are people that want to cut funding to basic research that, you know, that wonder what, I mean, what, what really is the Higgs boson going to do for our economy? Yeah, the answer is nothing. It won't do anything. Uh, well, you know, it, it, that's right. It's a very complicated argument there. And in, in the particle at the end of the universe, I talk about this very directly because we did spend of order $10 billion building Large Hadron Collider. Right. Now, that works out to less than $2 per year per person in the CERN domain, where CERN is the European Particle Physics Center. It's not a lot of money overall. But it's it's money that could have been spent elsewhere, and so I say two things. You know, number one, 
as a matter of fact, when you throw money at basic research, the economy gets more money back than you put in. Because whether or not you try, you invent new things that are very useful. The Higgs boson is useless for right. technology, but to find it, we built amazing computer equipment. CERN invented the World Wide Web, which has been right. kind of important. Superconducting technology, uh, radiation-hardened particle detector technology. These things are, are actually all quite useful. And the second point is that I don't care whether they're useful or not. Even if they were not useful, even if we did not get the money back, this is one of the fundamental things that we do as human beings. We try to figure out what the world is. And uh, <laughs> there's a quote in the book where Steven Weinberg, the great physicist, was talking to a, uh, a congressman. They were both on the same radio show at the same time. And the congressman says, you know, I think that we need to keep in, keep in track because they were talking about the superconducting supercollider, the American proposed uh, accelerator. The one in and the Texas. congressman said, yeah, the one that was going to be built in Texas and was eventually yeah. canceled. And the congressman said, we have to focus on our national priorities. And Steven Weinberg said, well, we're discovering the ultimate laws of nature. Isn't that a national priority? And the congressman said, no. <laughs> so there you have it. <laughs> there you go. Uh, so I want to fight against that attitude. I think it should be a national priority and international. And no, I, I agree. When I, I teach a class, on uh, kind of a conceptual physics class, and um, we talk about this, you know, a lot of money – on any of these experiments, like ver uh, testing um, predictions for general relativity, for instance, a lot right. of money spent. So, and then you tell students like how much money was spent. Sometimes they 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 react like, why are we spending all this money? And I think the argument we want to push back is the one that you're presenting. No, the, we're after something more fundamental. Uh, something actually, if you take you know you look at history, Aristotle says people by nature want to know, and you know, I right. think there's some sense in which that's got to be correct. We're We've got to answer these questions if for another reason that they've been keeping us up at night for thousands of years. <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of physicists recognize that. Most physicists do. I was actually at the Large Hadron Collider on July 4th, 2012, the day they announced the discovery of the Higgs boson, and I got to talk to Lynn Evans, who's a Welsh physicist who's basically the person most responsible for building the Large Hadron Collider. And so, you know, we asked him, like, so what in your mind is the reason why we put in all this effort and we do this. And he instantly said, inspiration. It's because in his mind, his generation had Apollo and the moon landings and something to make you think bigger and look towards the stars. And so that is, that is his reason for discovering the Higgs boson. It's because, you know, it gets your imagination going when you're a kid and gets you thinking about bigger things. And you don't necessarily grow up to become a particle physicist, but you grow up to think big ideas yeah. and see where that takes you. Yeah, that's amazing. People, you and know, I think that philosophy out. is the same way, by the way. I mean, I think that, you know, asking questions about the meaning of life or the right and wrong or the ultimate nature of reality or knowledge, you know, these can be, you know, there's a certain kind of person for whom that's what inspires you and gets you thinking. So I, I agree, in other words, that uh, these are very similar issues. So, because I want to uh, get back to the joke you made in passing about um, progress in theology, discovering that there is no God. Um, and, you know, I don't know if you meant that. I mean, I guess you're a pretty outspoken atheist, so I, I know that. But And I'm not um, a religious person, but I guess I consider myself agnostic. Mm -hmm. um, and but the reason why I consider myself agnostic is not because I like any particular religion, um, but rather I do wonder uh, about the question whether or not there's a role for some kind of external thing in explaining what goes on in the universe. So it seems like to me what you were basically like, you say no, that any kind of supernatural entity, if you, I wouldn't call it a god, but let's say it is, whatever it is, 
um, you know, demiurge, if you like, Plato or whatever, some kind of thing, designer thing. Uh, you say no conceivable role for such an entity. And I guess, you know, one of the most famous areas where people might see this is um, talking about fine-tuning. Mm -hmm. um, so you, even, so I agree that you could say, look, I, I think that uh, we could explain away this fine-tuning stuff, but do you really think that there's not a reasonable thing to suggest that one possible answer to fine-tuning or various related kind of questions is some external agent, designer-type entity? I think that, you know, at the a priori level, I don't want to say it's not conceivable or not reasonable to think about. I just think that we are well past the point where, as an empirical matter, uh, it has become a reasonable uh, hypothesis in terms of there's a non-trivial likelihood that it is on the right track. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that the fine-tuning argument is the best argument that we have for the existence of God, and it's a terrible argument. I think that, yeah. you know, <laughs> it just goes wrong a million different ways. If, if the there's There's no question that we observe features of the universe that seem to us unnatural. You know, the numbers that we actually use to parameterize our physical theories are not right. what you might have guessed if you had no data whatsoever. Uh, the idea, the hypothesis that that's because our universe was designed by intelligent creator, you know, either that's a hypothesis that explains nothing, and therefore I'm not going to think about it, or it's a hypothesis that makes predictions, that some things should be some way and not the other because this is how the designer would have wanted them. And then you go look around and say, you know, does, does the kind of fine-tuning we see in the world match what you might expect a designer to do? And the answer is no, it's not even close. It's not even, you know, in the ballpark. And in addition, you know, added to all the sort of vagueness of the hypothesis, you know, the, the non-rigorousness of it, and uh, it's just, you know, you're welcome to consider it, but I would advocate dismissing it once you've considered it. <laughs> so what, what kind of evidence, I mean, so I guess I agree with you that, I mean, I don't think that, I think it's a terrible argument in the sense that at most what it does is, is give you this kind of idea that uh, um, a priori, that it seems to us that it's very suspicious that these things are set in su in a certain way, and especially when combined with anthropic principles, which maybe we can talk about later. Mm -hmm. But it seems so. You want an explanation of that? I mean, that seems like a natural thing to want an explanation of. Sure. And there are ways to make it a little bit more rigorous, like you could talk about density matrix and vacuum energies and stuff. So there there are things you can say that that get you out of this kind of realm. But you know, either way, the question is. Isn't, isn't it reasonable to look for an explanation? And if on one side the explanations are it's chance or a multiverse and or, or a designer, I mean, if those are your three options, I, I'm just saying, uh, what, what's the empirical evidence that's supposed to pick between those? They, they, well, equally, they all seem equally inexplanatory you know, in this big picture kind of way. Yeah, so there's, I think there's lots of pieces of evidence. You know, again, at the sort of judging the theories themselves kind of level, uh, uh, the multiverse idea is a very broad scenario that could be implemented in any one of many different ways. But if you look at the papers written by people who are trying to use the anthropic principle in the multiverse, they contain equations, these papers, and graphs, and limits, yeah. and error <laughs> bars. And the theology papers don't, right? You don't actually make those kinds of predictions on the basis of theism. So as right. a theory, it's just not at the level uh, that we look for in our scientific theories. And plus, I would say, you know, if 
that idea is true at all, the very first thing that I would predict is that the kinds of fine-tuning we would observe in the universe would be those that are sort of appropriate to bringing into existence human beings or human life or something like that. Yeah. Now, as a matter of fact, we live in a universe that is sort of preposterously out of scale to human beings, right? And you don't also need hostile, incredibly hostile. Galaxies. Sorry. I said also incredibly hostile. <laughs> it's incredibly hostile. I mean, you know, yeah, that life could be a lot easier if it had been finely tuned for us. <laughs> yeah. uh, you don't need 100 billion galaxies. You don't need this large, messy thing. The entropy of the universe doesn't need to be anywhere near as small as it is, and so right. forth. So I don't think, so I think that empirically it fails. And, and also there's this conceptual question that I think is underappreciated. You know, people talk about, well, what the conditions, the parameters of physics or chemistry or cosmology need to be to allow life to exist. And when they say those, they're treating life as a purely naturalistic phenomenon, you know, right. a collection of atoms and molecules that are doing something. But of course, the argument being made is for a non-naturalistic worldview. If right. God wants to make living creatures that are something other than mere collections of atoms, following the laws of physics, the parameters of physics could be anything at all. God is not right. constrained by <laughs> fine-tuning the mass of the deuterium uh, isotope or anything <laughs> right. like that. So yeah. you know, I just think that there's no careful version of this that gets off the ground. Right. And, and if to, you know, to be honest, I, I tend to think that, if anything, this is a better argument for a for simulation hypothesis, um, for some kind of view that if there's design in nature, then you know, this maybe is a simulated environment and then I start to think, well, yeah, it starts to, this is evidence exactly how we would go about creating such simulation, making many of them randomly, evolving things in this. So, you know, I'm not necessarily arguing for the God hypothesis, but rather just the, the idea that maybe there's something external to what we call the universe, which is somehow responsible for setting it up in a certain way. Traditionally, yes, people would call that God, but I don't really care. I'm not, I'm not a religious person, like I said. So it could be designed um, in simulation, could be designed in the way people normally think of it. I'm just more interested in the question of does fine-tuning count as evidence of any kind, whether weak or defeated or not? Does it count as evidence of any kind? Uh, for uh, some kind of designer scenario. And yeah, so, but again, I mean, I think if you take that hypothesis uh, seriously, when you design World of Warcraft, yeah. you do not make the the sort of um, playing field a billion times, a hundred billion times, a hundred billion times bigger than the part that the <laughs> characters can actually run around in, right? Uh, so either you take seriously your hypothesis and, and try to guess what the world would look like if it were true, and then I would say it doesn't look like that, uh, or it's just sort of you wait until you discover some fine-tuning and go, oh, yes, that's exactly what the designer would have done, which I think right. is quite satisfying. Yeah, I think I agree with that. So yeah, I think it's worth considering. I think that you know we have in physics and in cosmology um, parameters that are finely tuned for reasons that we don't know why, but right. they tend to be quite explicable uh, in principle in purely physical terms. So uh, it, I th to me, given the vagueness and unsatisfyingness of the theistic or designer hypothesis, uh, it's a it becomes very much a god of the gaps kind of move. You know, we have yeah. this number in the universe. We don't know why it's that. Clearly, someone made it that way. You know, just give us time. We'll, we'll figure it out. hundred years ago, we didn't know the universe was expanding. I mean, come on. <laughs> right. No, yeah, I agree. So we're asking a bit much here. Uh, yeah. But again, so I was just trying to – the only thing I'm interested in is, is there any kind of weak, defeatable evidence something here? And, I, you know, I, uh, 
I tend to think it is defeated for exactly the reasons that you're saying. But I, but but I, I, I just a lot of people tend to say, oh no, that's ridiculous, we, and they dismiss it right to bat. But I think there's something there that's interesting. Why are these things that way? And you either it gets very deep into the question about principle sufficient reason, for instance. There either is an explanation for that, in which case we want to know it, or else right. the explanation just stops somewhere, and then that in itself is something interesting to find out. I think so. Well, that I think is uh, you know I would separate that out from the fine tuning argument a little bit, but I do think it's it's uh, the other interesting argument for something be beyond sort of straightforward physicalism or. Um, uh, materialism, uh, and you know, I think that th there is something where a lot less attention has been paid on the scientific side of things. You know, what extent to to what extent can we demand explanations for things, reasons why uh, causes rather than just happenings? Uh, what is the role of the laws of physics? Are they merely patterns, or are they actually generative entities in their own right? So, you know. The, Again, this is exactly the kind of thing that real scientists would, you know, rather uh, be poked in the eyes with with uh, hot knives than actually yeah. think about these uh, carefully. But they're worth thinking about, and I think that uh, you know, in my mind, many of the re uh, the way that I would sort of sketch out the answer is that here in our lives, we're used to finding reasons and causes and so forth because we live in a universe that on the one hand is governed by unbreakable patterns given by physical laws, but on the other hand, we have these emergent higher level descriptions because we live in a world that is made of many, many pieces evolving according to the second law of thermodynamics, which gives right. us the arrow of time and so forth. And so our notions of fundamental causality in our everyday lives are just wildly inappropriate to the ultimate laws of nature and the nature of the universe. So. Uh, you know, when you when people start talking about the principle of sufficient reason, I think that's just something that should be completely abandoned when we're talking about truly fundamental ontological issues. But one is free to disagree about that, and I think that we're the the. I, I would also agree that the conversation is not mature about that. It's it's something that we really need to do a lot of work to figure out why our, how our notions of cause and effect and explanation arise out of a world that is just bosons and fermions bumping into each other. Right. Maybe this is a, a good point to, to segue into some stuff about time. Okay. Uh, unless, Richard, you had something else up your sleeve. No, yeah, I think time. It's time for the time. Time for time. <laughs> it's an There's illusion. a lot more to say, obviously, but yeah, I think that was... I think that was <laughs> so, um, I'm, I'm very interested in, in the arrow of time problem and really a, a, a total novice about this, even though I I'm teaching a class this semester on the philosophy of space and time, and we have a unit on the arrow of time. But uh, you know, I'm my my training is primarily in philosophy of mind and and philosophy mm -hmm. of neuroscience. So um, I'm going to ask you some really dumb questions about this. I hope you're Good. patient with me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is like what the pool shark says before he runs the table. Yeah, I know. I'm, I'm, yeah. I don't fall for it for a second. Don't worry. <laughs> no, I really have nothing on my sleeve. So, um, so one one thing I'm I'm interested in is um, the the, the I'm I'm not exactly sure how to formulate the question, but it goes something like um, you know why why does an um, a highly ordered early state explain present um, or, or local uh, what you might call irreversibility? So so on, on relatively Relatively small time scales, I observe uh, eggs breaking, but I don't observe shards uh, coming back together. Yeah, that's right. 
and on a on a, a purely a purely statistical view uh, of thermodynamics, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. But what I don't see is how on a on a purely statistical view of dynamics, it, it would matter to these local um, these local processes. What would be happening with the with with the Big Bang? What would be happening billions of years ago? Yeah, I think that's a, a perfectly uh, fair question. Just to sort of put everything in context here. You know, we have this point of view that all, I have this point of view, some people share it, that all of the differences between past and future, all of the arrownesses of time, uh, come about because the entropy of the universe used to be much smaller. The fundamental laws of physics seem perfectly reversible and symmetric with respect to time. But if you put the universe in a very special low entropy state near the Big Bang, then entropy is increasing and that leads to all of these differences, including memory and cognition, and we can get into that as well. But you're asking a very good question, like how does this cosmic fact about the low entropy of the very early universe literally come into the kitchen and affect you know, what I can do right. uh, you know, with, with eggs and mixing cream into coffee and so forth? And I think that you know, the explanation is a Baroque one. It's a complicated one. You know, why are you not surprised to find eggs in your refrigerator? Well, you know, your refrigerator is not anywhere near thermal equilibrium. And, you know, why Well, why isn't it? It has, has had billions of years to get to thermal equilibrium. And, you know, well, <laughs> it's going to take a lot longer than billions of years. You know, I mean, one thing I think that is highly um, underappreciated is we can calculate, we can do a rough back-of-the-envelope um, calculation for how long it will take our region of universe to come to thermal equilibrium, roughly speaking. And the best answer we have now is about 10 to the 100 years. Whereas the age of the universe is like 10 to the 10 years. <laughs> so we're like nowhere close to the point where we're in thermal equilibrium. The Earth's atmosphere would have come, the Earth's biosphere, I should say, like here on Earth, we would have come to thermal equilibrium a long time ago if the whole sky were the temperature of the sun Right? We would have come to the temperature of the sun pretty quickly, but it's not. The sun is a hot spot in a cold sky, and we get low entropy energy from the sun. We, we lower the entropy of things locally, like you know, chickens make eggs, and we turn on refrigerators, but only because we can then throw out higher entropy radiation into the universe. We take the energy we get from the sun and multiply its entry, entropy by a factor of 20 before we give it back to the universe. And uh, so the reason why it happens in your kitchen is because it happens with the sun. Well, well, why does it happen with the sun? Why is the sun very far from thermal equilibrium? Well, you know, the galaxy formed, and then you eventually go back to the Big Bang. So I think that it is a long step of explanations, but it works at every level. And, you know, if we all appreciated exactly how far we were away from the ultimate state of thermal equilibrium, we would be a lot less surprised that there was this connection between what happens in our everyday lives and what happens in the Big Bang. I wonder if it's fair to say that the part of your answer is that um, the, that, that what's going on here isn't purely statistical. So, so if you if you think of if if you think of these various states as is not in in any way related uh, to one another, they're just they're just these possible uh, states. Then it, right. Then if you then if you pick one, uh, any other one that you pick is going to have higher entropy. Almost any other one, yes, that's right. And it doesn't even <laughs> well. It doesn't matter. I mean, how one way to say it is the the real the real puzzle is not why entropy will be bigger tomorrow, right? That's easy. Boltzmann explained that it's the most obvious thing in the world. The real puzzle is why was the entropy lower yesterday? 
That's <laughs> that's what is the challenge. And the claim is the entropy of the universe or of your room or whatever was lower yesterday because it was even lower the day before yesterday. <laughs> and why is that true? You know, you just go back uh, 13.8 billion years to the Big Bang. And uh, it the so. So, for for example, for the egg, the I like to use an example with the egg um, about that is really a, a, a claim about memory. Why is it that you remember the past and not the future? Right. And so, my my stand-in for a memory is you're walking down the street and there's a broken egg on the sidewalk, and you can ask yourself like, what is the likely future of that broken egg? And it can you know it could just sit there and get moldy, or a dog could come along and eat it, or it could wash away in a rainstorm. There's many many things that could happen in the future. But if you ask yourself what is the past of that egg, what was the likely state of that egg 24 hours before? It was probably an unbroken egg to very very high confidence. And the real question is, what gives you that confidence? Why do you you put this asymmetry on the state of the egg? It's conceivable the egg just arose from the random motions right. of molecules and assembled itself in a broken form on the uh, sidewalk, but we don't yeah. think that's actually what happened. And the the purported answer is that because we know that the universe had a lower entropy in the past. So the question is that we're, we're supposed to be asking ourselves is not, given the macro state of the egg, what are all the different ways it could have come from? But given the lower entropy past of the universe, what are the most likely ways to make a broken egg? And they all pass through the state of making an unbroken egg and then breaking it. And, you know, again, I'm completely in agreement with the idea that there is a lot of work to do in putting these stories together. Uh, people are debating back and forth, you know, does thought or computation necessarily line up with the thermodynamic arrow of time. I mean, people are still fuzzy on Maxwell's demon, right? I mean, that's still, you know, uh, the the final once and for all answer to what where the entropy is going in Maxwell's demon is still not completely settled. So I think these are all very good questions, and when I, you know, I'm I'm certainly uh, talking about expectations in my own mind when I say the reason why we remember the past and not the future is because the entropy used to be lower. I think that it will be possible to put together an explanation of that form. We don't have all the pieces of that explanation in place yet. Well, let me... Let me I, oh, sorry, oh, go ahead, Pete. Um, actually, uh, we're at the 30-minute the mark. We, we need to pause for a quick break. So welcome back from the break. <laughs> it's funny how time works that way. It does. <laughs> well, 
I, I don't know. I might possibly uh, be changing the subject, but I was going to ask about uh, because I guess I'm someone who w would like to see uh, the era of time uh, explained by decoherence, uh, and in particular the uh, decoherence of the wave function over over the lifespan of the universe, so to speak, right. or something like that. So and and that you know that that gives you the arrow of time. Um, yeah, so it goes the it, other way around. I'm afraid. Okay, <laughs> so what do you? Decoherence is explained by the arrow of time. Okay. I mean, if you well, believe why in. Why does it go that way as opposed to the way I would like it to go? Okay, so think about how we normally talk about decoherence. Uh, for those of you who are not quantum mechanics experts, that's okay. Uh, think of Schrodinger's cat. You know, there's a cat in a box, is in a superposition, a true quantum mechanical superposition of being alive or dead. The claim is that the reason why we're not surprised when you open the box, you only ever see an alive cat or a dead cat, yeah. is because, in fact, the quantum state of the cat is interacting with an environment. You know, there's air molecules bumping off of it, and there's photons and so forth, and we don't keep track of that pieces, those pieces of the environment, and so we sort of, the, the technical term is we trace them out, but we ignore them, and so really there is a, that's the, the process of decoherence, the information about which state the cat is in gets entangled with its environment, and we ignore that environment, so there's really a splitting of the world into two possibilities, if you believe in the Everett version of quantum mechanics, one with the cat alive and one with the cat dead. But that whole discussion, and you can make it much more rigorous if you talk about spins and apparatuses and, and so forth, begins by saying start with a quantum mechanical system that is in a superposition that is unentangled right. with the environment. That is a special low entropy early boundary condition. Right. And if you didn't have that, if you were in thermal equilibrium and everything was as entangled as it could be, you couldn't make decoherence happen. It would already be, not only it would be sort of decohered and recohered already, the, the, there would be entanglements of everything with everything else. The fact that you make more branches as the universe moves forward in time in the Everett interpretation relies on the fact that in the past there were very few branches. And that is a statement that the past wave function of the universe was a very low entropy state. In high entropy uh, states, there's there's a lot of branches, or the other way around. When there are many, many branches, the entropy of any one subsystem is expected to be extremely high. Right. So I would say that the reason why decoherence and branching works the way it does is because we've all along been assuming a special low entropy boundary condition in the past. And it's the same formal setup where, for explaining the asymmetries of statistical mechanics. It's the same. That's right. It's the same formal setup. But what? So I, I I agree with what you're saying. But what makes one the explanation of the other? So why couldn't we say, well, look, you're you, you know you're setting it up, and you need the same thing that the decoherence people story needs. So our story is the one that actually tells how it's unfolding in a certain direction, and the other stuff just comes along for the ride. So I'm I'm not saying this is the right way. I'm just asking what would be the reason for thinking uh, the other one's more fundamental in explaining the. Well, I wouldn't say one is more fundamental than the other. I would say that the, the asymmetries of time evolution, both in statistical mechanics and in quantum mechanics, both rely on a special boundary condition in the past. They don't yeah. rely on a special boundary condition in the future. So uh, it's, it's not that one explains the other, so they're both explained by the same thing. Right. I see. They're both explained by the same thing. So, um, th But does that give you a unique... Arrow, because I guess the thing I cared about most was that decoherence seems to explain nicely that there's a direction, a directionality. Right, but decoherence would not be any more likely than recoherence if there weren't a directionality built in by the low entropy uh, past state. Yeah, that's a good point. 
Okay. <laughs> I have to think about that more. <laughs> so I wrote a paper back in uh, May um, called um, De Sitter Space Without Quantum Fluctuations to graduate students, Kim Boddy and Jason Pollock and I, uh, where, we, where we look at this question, actually, because in cosmology, when we talk about the multiverse and things like that, there are, for the most part, most of the history of the multiverse, you're in a pretty good approximation to thermal equilibrium, right? I mean, things right. are empty space, and it's just uh, De Sitter Space. That's where it comes from in the title. With possibly vacuum energy, like we think we have in cosmology, a cosmological constant. And then there's a story that people tell about quantum fluctuations in empty space and so forth. And we think that that story is largely mistaken uh, because people haven't quite appreciated the role of decoherence in quantum fluctuations mm -hmm. and the role of the necessity to be way out of thermal equilibrium to talk about decoherence. So the ordinary story of things fluctuating into existence through quantum fluctuations doesn't quite apply to uh, thermal equilibrium. It depends on details of whether or not you're really, really, really in thermal equilibrium or whether or not you're just pretty close and can fluctuate out of it. But uh, you could imagine if you're close to thermal equilibrium but not quite, a fluctuation could put you from a high entropy state into a lower one and then you could relax back. Um, but that's not a necessary thing to happen in cosmology and it's certainly very, very different than what happens in our laboratories here on Earth. Right. Yeah, that's interesting. Okay, well, so much for that idea then. <laughs> this is the kind of thing that we talk about in philosophy of cosmology meetings. I mean, this is uh, you know important stuff. And I, I, I don't want to sound too definitive because even though everything that I have said is completely correct, not everyone agrees with me. So. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah, someone else on the show, they might say different things. But <laughs> Okay, interesting. So um, sticking on the arrow, is it, it to, to the degree that I understand your own view on this stuff, Sean, you're not, you don't really think there is an arrow. Is that, isn't that correct? Don't you think in the, in the grand, uh, in the grand scheme of things that time is symmetric? Well, you know, I'm a very big believer in the reality of emergent higher level phenomena. So I would never ever say there is no arrow. I would say there's an explanation of it uh, at the macroscopic level and I would say that the our best current idea and my best guess as to the ultimate idea for what the laws of physics are does not have an arrow in the equations of motion. So I think the, the, the arrow of time is something that uh, may or may not exist at different parts of the universe, different uh, locations, different situations, and so forth. What, um, what, what I have in mind is a, a slide from a talk of yours that I was watching on YouTube this morning where you had some baby universes. Right. And uh, baby, the baby, some of the baby universes uh, had time. Um, they, they were, um, the, the little babies were in low entropy state, Right. And, uh, and then heading towards the thermodynamic equilibrium. But if I understood the graph correctly, there were some baby universes being born backwards or something like that. And, That's right. And, and, and Benjamin well, Button universes? <laughs> well, exactly. Well in our past. That's right. So, so yeah, way, way, way in our past, there are, That's right. we, ha we perhaps have doppelganger universes that are moving backwards. That. That's right, and, and they would say that we are in their past, and if you lived in one of those universes, it wouldn't locally look any different than it looks in ours. They would both say that there was a low entropy past state, and the entropy is increasing. It's just that in the global arrow that you could draw in that whole multiverse picture, the 
direction of the local thermodynamic arrow is different in some places than in others. Uh, be, okay. And that, that, so that is, if that's what you're getting at, then yes, I do not believe that the arrow of time is something that is intrinsic. I think it is something that reflects the local state of matter and evolution in our local region of the universe, and it could be very different somewhere else. And then, yes, this is the same idea that Boltzmann had back in the 1890s, so I have some credibility on myself. <laughs> so I want to I pose kind of a problem for, for this, and I mean, I don't know if it's going to be, actually be a problem, but um, so if there are a bunch of these um, time-reversed doppelgangers uh -huh. of our own universe, and, and maybe even uh, of us, so there's, that there's uh, one of these backwards universes that's, that's just like uh, it's just like this one. It has a, a Sean Carroll and a Richard Brown and a Pete Mandic, but but relative to us, they're they're going backwards, and um, it ain't pretty from our point of view. <laughs> <laughs> it is not pretty, <laughs> but uh, from their point of view, that there's that um, everything is fine, and uh, you might wonder who's right. So so we uh, we remember. From a very parochial kind of view, we remember the past accurately, and they have these weird. Um, they're not actually remembering the past. They have these these weird beliefs about the past that are all false. No, and, you know, I I wouldn't quite say that. I think that um, we remember the past in in a picture like this. We remember the past up to the Big Bang. Uh, as far back as the Big Bang. Uh, before then, you're not really remembering things. You're predicting, you're, you're sort of uh, speculating about what happened on the basis of your theoretical model, in the same way that we speculate about the future of our actual universe on the basis of this theoretical model. But a memory is some sort of uh, artifact here, you know, some sort of physical configuration here and now that we think because entropy is increasing bears some close correlation to an actual physical event in the past, right. whether it's a photograph or a history book or whatever. So, you know, once again, in, in, this, in this kind of picture, um, there's no difference between the epistemic situation for those backward-going guys and for us. Yeah. We both have records and artifacts of our relatively recent 10-billion-year-old past, from our point of view. Uh, we use our theoretical knowledge to speculate about the bigger picture. Hmm. Yeah, so maybe I shouldn't have said memory, but if, I, but if instead I said something about... Like, uh, cause, right, because memory has this kind of causal right. component to it. it has, but I, I, have, I have beliefs about... I have beliefs about the past that aren't you wouldn't say they're they're not memories because I wasn't there to yeah. experience what but happened. And, and those are exactly like beliefs about the future. Um, but is there a sense in which they are mistaken? They've got a whole bunch of uh, false beliefs about what's what's going to happen. So for one thing, just to, just so people watching or listening know, there's no necessary component of this idea that says that the universes that are in our past and going backwards are mirror copies of us. They right. might be statistically similar, but you know you don't need to actually have us. But there will be people right. going backwards, and no one is mistaken in the whole point of view. We use different vocabularies. Uh, that's okay. It's it's not a it's not a mistake. Hmm. They will have baby pictures of themselves when they were what we would call ten years older, but <laughs> they would call it ten years younger. You know that's okay. So, uh, uh, one one thing I'm wondering about uh, that might be problematic about this is, and maybe this is a, a total leap, um, is some analogy between this situation and uh, the problem of Boltzmann brains. Because mm -hmm. Boltzmann brains are uh, like these uh, time reverse doppelgangers in a very local sort of way. They're they're highly similar to us. 
Well, that's right. They could, um, you know, a Boltzmann brain is a random fluctuation out of a thermal equilibrium state, and they can be in whatever macro state you want. I mean, you'll have random fluctuations that look like viruses, that look like disembodied brains, that look like people, that look like galaxies, whatever, whatever you want to have. And they can be, if you wait long enough, there'll be fluctuations that are in the middle of some gigantic uh, overall change of entropy in one direction or another, and there'll be much more localized um, ephemeral fluctuations as well. And the problem with being such a such a thing is that if you had reason to believe that you were a random fluctuation from a higher entropy state rather than what we think we are, which is a sort of sensible thermodynamic evolution from a very low entropy state, then you would not have any reason to trust your memories or your impressions. Well, you wouldn't uh, have any memories. Well, you might think you do, you might think <laughs> but you, do. <laughs> you have no reason to rely on them, right? I mean, they, they would fluctuate randomly into your head. In fact, whatever memories you might want to have, there will be an infinite number of Boltzmann brains that have those memories, okay? <laughs> and But if you thought that you were a Boltzmann brain, you would know that all your memories are unreliable. They're by your own hypothesis, including all of your memories of those physics and philosophy classes you took as an undergraduate that, that told you how to think about these things, or the math <laughs> classes that taught you how to calculate probabilities. They just randomly fluctuated into your brain. And so you would have zero reason to trust any conclusions, including your own conclusion that you but this is why it is cognitively unstable in the uh, in the sense that David Albert talked about in a different context. There's yeah. no way to both uh, think you are a Boltzmann brain and have a good reason to think you're a Boltzmann brain at the same time. Right. <laughs> is that enough a reason to think you aren't one? Yeah, because there's no other way to go through life. <laughs> and I think that you know it's. Uh, it, I think that this this is a good sort of um, card to play in many uh, situations of radical skepticism, whether right. it's I'm a brain in a vat or I'm being tormented by an evil demon uh, or I'm, I'm in a simulation that just started last Thursday. Right. You know, there's many, many things that could be true that would completely undermine my beliefs about how the world works and what the past was and whatever. They may or may not be true. If they're true, I cannot go forward. Right? I cannot do anything. I cannot make plans for the future. I cannot draw conclusions from what I believe. And therefore, I, I don't think there's any reason to consider them. I think that it, it, our job as philosophers or, or scientists or thinkers is to come up with theories of the world that are potentially useful. Right. That's the best we can ever hope to do. We can't rule out uh, on the basis of observation the idea that we are random fluctuations or dreams or whatever. But if now if a, if a theory entails that there are more Boltzmann brains than um, ordinary observers. Mm -hmm. I mean, would you you would you would count that as um, a basis for for ruling out that theory? Is that I would I would reject that theory. Um, it's a little bit difficult because when you have these large universes where yeah. there's more than one observer with the same local data, you have a difficult problem of of the um, uh, reference class. Problem. Am I a typical observer or whatever? There's okay. one case when I think I know how to deal with that, which is the case where there are literally identical 
epistemic states to other observers that I have right now. So there's literally another copy of me who thinks that there is, you know, the same room around me and that has the same memories and, and all that stuff. So locally indistinguishable. In that case, I think there's very good reasons to, you know, assign a certain being one copy of that person versus another copy. And, you know, if some of those, if, if the overwhelming majority of those copies are random fluctuations into existence, then that's a real problem for your theory and I would reject it. And that is typically what happens in these sort of universes. I mean, it's not. This is not any crazy speculative thing based on string theory or the or you know multiverse or inflation. <laughs> Our favorite theory of cosmology purportedly has this problem. Our favorite theory of modern cosmology is something called lambda CDM, right. lambda being the cosmological constant and being cold dark matter. And it says that, you know, we're expanding now, the universe is emptying out, diluting away, and it will continue to expand and cool and empty out for infinity years. And in the course of those infinity years, there will be fluctuations, and the overwarity of appearances of people like me will be these random Boltzmann-like fluctuations. That is, you know, our favorite theory of cosmology right now, and I would argue that it's obviously not something we should take seriously. Oh, uh, I see. So I was missing that part. So, you're, so you would then say, yes, that... The fact that it predicts that we have good reason to believe we're Boltzmann brains right now is a reason that not to take it seriously. That's right. There has to be something wrong with that picture. And so in my paper with Jason and Kim, I say that, in fact, the thing that is wrong with that idea is that I don't actually think that quantum fluctuations bring these freak observers into existence in the future. Um, an even easier way out is to say that our universe will not last for that much longer, that there will be a phase transition that kills us all over the next few ten tens of billions of years. Well, that's depressing. So, well, you know... Settle your stock portfolio issues now because <laughs> in a million years it might all be over. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry. Someone is buzzing in the building right now. So the Frankie does not like these uh, <laughs> these theories either. <laughs> so so I'm sorry I missed the last part. But you were saying that we have to modify this theory. One way to do it is to assert that there's a finite amount of time rather than an infinite amount of time. That's right. That's one way, and that's the sort of chilling way. Uh, another way is just to say that our prediction uh, that Boltzmann brains actually do fluctuate into existence in empty space is just wrong. Okay. So I, I, I like either of those options, but like what, what would be the evidence that we would have besides the Boltzmann brain thing for, for choosing between which of these options? Well, I, I think mean, it both like any good in principle reasons to say that you can't have these random fluctuations make brains, and it doesn't seem to be any good in principle reason to say that time has to be finite. So I'm just, or no, so I would argue that there is a good in principle reason to think that quantum fluctuations do not make these brains. Oh, that it's good. a misunderstanding of how quantum fluctuations work. That's the paper that we came out with. Just actually, we wrote it in May, and uh, just on a, on a personal level, the other day I checked its status at the journal, and you know, <laughs> It got refereed, and the referee didn't like it, but the referee clearly didn't read it, so we sort of <laughs> asked for a different referee to go. So I just checked, and they sent it to three different referees and gotten three different referee reports, and they're still not ready to make a decision on the paper yet. So wow. the physics community is not quite ready to, <laughs> to handle these ideas. That's my optimistic way of spinning it. Can you give us a uh, yeah. survey of the argument? Because now you've piqued my interest. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so you know when we, when we think about the, the phrase quantum fluctuations. What is it supposed to mean? So if you take uh, an atom, a hydrogen atom with an electron in it, okay, you are tempted to say that there are quantum fluctuations in what the electron is doing. I think that what that would mean 
at its sort of most respectable is that if you were to observe the position or the velocity of the electron over and over again, make an observation and then reset the system to the ground state of its yeah. of its orbital, you would get different positions for the electron. The observational outcomes would be different and they would obey the statistics given you by quantum mechanics. And that's typically what we mean when we say quantum fluctuations. Um, however, I would also make the point that if it's if the whole universe is that electron sitting there in that atom in an energy eigenstate, in a ground state, for example, its lowest energy state, there's nothing fluctuating. There's nothing changing. It's in a stationary state. The quantum mechanical wave function is independent of time. So the idea of fluctuations is something that happens not intrinsic to the quantum state of some small system, but when that state is interacting with some other state in a time-dependent way. Right. And when you're in truly empty space, if you wait the 10 to the 100 years it will take our universe to empty out and all the black holes to evaporate, you approach a stationary state. You approach the ground state of the universe. There's empty space and nothing else. Mm -hmm. There is nothing fluctuating in that uh, in that scenario. So the calculation you do to show at what rate do Boltzmann brains appear is actually not a calculation that answers that question. The calculation one does is what is the probability of seeing a Boltzmann brain were I to look for it in empty space? But there is no one looking. And if you believe the Everett interpretation of quantum mechanics that uh, the observational probabilities are really like we talked about um, probabilities associated with decoherent uh, processes happening over time. In thermal equilibrium, decoherence isn't happening. You're just sitting there in thermal equilibrium in a stationary state. So I think that the numbers that people attach to the rate at which Boltzmann brains appear in empty space are the you know the right answer to a wrong question. It's not the question we actually care about. The actual rate is zero. Right. Well, would it would it change anything if someone were actually out there looking, checking bits of empty space for Boltzmann brains? Yes, Wait, don't it go would. putting ideas on my head, Richard. <laughs> <laughs> if the universe were not a closed system and it were not in thermal equilibrium, that changes everything. Yeah. Interesting. I like this argument because the Boltzmann brain stuff is always giving me headaches. So, if if there's just one one particle. In a universe, um, and that's the only particle. So you're arguing then there can't be fluctuations. Um, changing if the universe, if if any system is in a stationary state, there are no fluctuations. It sounds right. so obvious that right. <laughs> I don't know how to say it better than that. If the universe is not changing, then it doesn't change. Right. Um, so that includes position as well as energy state. Yeah, well, no, position states are not energy. Energy eigenstates are special because they are right. stationary. Right. If you're not in energy eigenstate, then you are evolving, right? That's that's sort of uh, how quantum mechanics works. So we are used to observing things other than energy, and we see those things fluctuating. But uh, you know, if something were in its ground state and we had a perfectly good energy measurement device, we just measure its energy over and over again. It would not fluctuate. Is this is this relate? Yeah, right. Is this related to the quantum Zeno effect? Not really, because the quantum Zeno effect, you're observing something that you can get different answers for, I and see. you know, anytime that happens, what you're really saying is that you're starting in a ready state, and there's not entanglement, and then you interact, and entanglement happens. That's all dynamical processes where things are really happening. Right. It's really, you know, uh, the our brains are not our, our 
not our brains, our quantum mechanical intuition, such as it is, <laughs> is trained in situations which is which are very, very far away from thermal equilibrium. And so when we really think about the operation of closed systems in stationary states, we need to update our expectations a little bit. Interesting. So, what do you want? Would you mind sharing what some reservations from the reviewers have been, or is there an objection that they keep kicking around that they're misunderstanding a point? Well, there, so argument? there is a subtle point. So, if you believe this point of view, then there, so there's there's a counter argument that says the following thing: I can think of a stationary state in quantum mechanics uh, formally as a superposition of many, many, many time debates. It's just because in quantum right. mechanics, you can always think of anything as a superposition of anything else. So the the point of view I just put forward begs the question of which superposition is real, right? Which is the one that we should right. use to talk about what is actually happening there in the quantum mechanical wave function? And, you know, I think that's a perfectly legitimate question. Uh, I think that the answer is pretty obvious when you're in a stationary state, and that's the whole universe, and that is the universe forever. That's the basis <laughs> you should use. Um, if and our reason for using other bases is prejudiced because we have other observables and apparatuses that see things uh, more easily, or something like that. Uh, if you take this other point of view, then you know you would believe that any part of the universe is really alive with a superposition of an infinite number of things going on. Like out there in empty space, in between here and Jupiter, there is an infinite number of civilizations rising and falling, and, and yeah. loves and deaths, and you know because that's some some uh, component of some superposition of the quantum mechanical way of describing that. So we don't, it's, like, it's one of these embarrassing things about quantum mechanics in my view, we don't have a good answer to the question what is happening inside the quantum mechanical wave function, even if you believe right. in the many worlds interpretation. So issues of decoherence and classicality and so forth need to be understood better in this context. Yeah, no, I, I agree that's absolutely right. And I mean, do you think that this is some over, leftover haze or fog from the dominance of the Copenhagen interpretation for so long? I mean, these Yeah, partly. You know, I think that uh, it, it's... Uh, I'm personally very happy with thinking of Hilbert space, where the quantum mechanical state lives, as where the universe lives, because that's how we describe the universe, as a quantum mechanical state. Right. And things like position and momentum and so forth are emergent approximations that have to do with a split in the quantum state between system and environment, a certain set of actual interactions in the Hamiltonian, the laws of physics, and so forth. And I'm very happy to consider all that stuff as sort of approximately useful superstructure that is that is invented for our purposes, but it's not fundamental or foundational. But other people will really want to say that, you know, no, 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 particles and positions and momenta are the real world, and quantum right. mechanics somehow blurs them out. And, you know, I'm, I'm very happy to say that locality is just an approximation and it's not really fundamental and so forth. And, and this bugs people. And, I, uh, and maybe it's because, in part, I work on quantum gravity. And in quantum gravity, where you have superpositions of different configurations for space-time, how in the world could locality be a fundamental thing? You know, we actually see it being non-fundamental in various specific models. So, yeah, I think that uh, I was semi-joking when I said, you know, our quantum mechanical intuitions need to be better because we all know that no one has very good quantum yeah. mechanical intuitions. <laughs> but even among people who, you know, are, are pretty good at the uh, quantum mechanics applied to real-world everyday laboratory experiments, it's still a whole other level of intuitive updating we need to do to understand cosmological quantum mechanics. Right. 
Interesting. I wonder if is this a good time to talk talk about some mini world stuff because I it's come up a couple of times and I wanted there are a couple of things I want to ask about it. So I don't know, uh, Pete. Do you have anything more to say about this? Uh, no, I've been dying to to get into many worlds. So let's let's fire it up. By the all way, right. let's call this a break though. Oh, okay. Yeah. Sorry about all the dog barking earlier, Frankie. I, I don't know. There's been a gas leak in the house. We're trying to get the gas turned on. There's a lot of activity. So sorry about that. But also, yes, Frankie but, hates quantum mechanics. I, we've yeah. established that in earlier episodes. <laughs> uh, yeah, I especially want to talk about this locality stuff because I, I've been hearing the, some rumors, um, uh, and I don't know how serious these rumors are, you know, but uh, about many worlds and locality. So I had some some questions for you, Sean. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Welcome back from the break, everybody. <laughs> that was a refreshing break. <laughs> so can we start off this? Because um, I know you have this, this position, Sean, where you claim that if, you'd like, if you like decoherence um, and, you, and you sort of just take the mathematics of it seriously, then you have the many worlds already sort of embedded in the, uh, that come out of the Schrodinger equation. Uh, so you don't, yeah. you're not really adding anything. So, I mean, is that that's fair? I, you know, I, I think that uh, people are welcome to disagree, but you know, no. My, my thought is that every single interpretation of quantum mechanics, or formulation of quantum mechanics, or attempt to clarify the superstructure of quantum mechanics, has in it uh, Hilbert space with wave functions, and I can write down wave functions that describe multiple non-interacting worlds. Right. In anyone's interpretation of quantum mechanics. Right. And Even in Bamian, I mean, yeah, right. Anyway. Yeah, that's right. And 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 so the uh, Ted Bunn, who's another physicist, said that we re should really think of other interpretations as disappearing worlds interpretations of quantum <laughs> mechanics, um, because the only difference between every every everything else is says yes, and those quantum states evolve according to the Schrodinger equation. They come into existence, and we should deal with them, and we don't need to get rid of the other worlds. Of course, yeah. I mean, hidden variables is a slightly more complicated thing, but uh, yeah, so I, I the certainly the default I would think uh, point of view to take towards quantum mechanics is that there's more than one world out there in the wave function, yeah. So, and so, so the disappearing world is that, that kind of way of trying to shift the burden to the other yeah. side. Um, why should they feel that as a challenge to their view? Because, I mean, you might just, I mean, you know, they might just say, look, you can get these mathematical descriptions of these semi-classical words. First of all, they're semi-classical. Right? Sure. So yeah. They're not, you don't get classical or classicality like in its real kind of, you know, yay classicality form out of, out of the uh, decoherent 
right? Nope, that is on. true. Yeah, so you know, I, I, I don't want to be, I, I'm very pro many worlds, but I don't want to hide the challenges. I mean, I think there are a lot of issues that we need to do better figuring out. Um, I would have said uh, a few years ago that the two main challenges were the preferred basis problem, you know, why yeah. does the wave function seem to collapse into some states but not others, and the probability problem. Why do you get the Born rule, the wave function squared is the probability. Uh, yeah. But that's because, in my own mind, that's because I was naive. I think that I didn't understand uh, modern quantum mechanics well enough. And these days, I'm pretty convinced that we have a good story to tell about those problems, about probability and about um, preferred basis problems. And I would say now, in my mind, the more serious problems or you know the more puzzling problems are drawing the boundaries in the wave function between the different worlds. Like, right. how many worlds are there? Is it even a sensible question to ask? How decoherent do you have to be? You call it, you know, I mean, decoherence is not perfect usually. Right. You get exponentially small things, but it, it still is possible. Is that bad or good? Or, and you know, maybe it all it get is easier if the fundamental theory of the world is finite dimensional Hilbert space rather than infinite dimensional. I don't know that either. So, yeah, I think that you know the fuzziness of the worlds and things like that. These are uh, real legitimate challenges that uh, a good Everettian will have to address. I see. Okay, interesting. Um, I like some of this other stuff that you were saying too. So, uh, but so I have some questions about the Born, uh, the Born rule actually. Uh -huh. And I know your position on this. I think I know your position on this, which is an agent, an agent theoretic kind of position. That that what what the probabilities tell us is, or maybe this isn't your position. I'm not sure now actually. But what the probabilities tell us is how likely an agent should expect that they'll end up in one of these branches or an experimenter. Well, you can't. I don't think you can say it that way because then you're just. So I, I don't think a, a careful Everettian should use those words because okay. then they're opening themselves. No, that can't be how it works because according to your theory of quantum mechanics, there's no such thing as to where you will go. You will go with probability one into multiple copies of right. yourself. Uh, so you can't use the language of which branch of the wave function will I end up in because you're going to end up in all of them. Right. Uh, well, so my point that of view, yeah, I wrote right. this. Sorry. Yeah. So I wrote this paper with um, Chip Sabins, who is a philosophy student, uh, about self-locating uncertainty and the Born rule. And you know, based on we borrowed a lot of other ideas. So there's a lot of credit that we should give to uh, Wojtek Zurek and Lev Weidman and Hilary Greaves and others. Um, but our basic point of view is that there is always, in realistic cases, and I, I claim that it is okay to start by explaining the realistic cases that actually happen before you are forced <laughs> to explain the cases that we could imagine. In real cases of, of measuring quantum mechanical systems, decoherence precedes knowledge. So the wave function branches effectively, decoherence happens very, 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 very quickly yeah. before the person actually, you know, the, the physicist doing the experiment knows the outcome of the experiment. So there's a period of time that is very brief when there are multiple copies of observers in identical epistemic states. There, there's more than one branch of the wave function, more than one copy of you. You don't know which branch you are on. Mm -hmm. And if you accept that, there's more or less a unique, uh, sensible way to apportion your credences in that situation. Uh, are you on this branch or are you on that branch? And we go through the math, and guess what? It's the Born rule. It's that you should give the probability uh, being the amplitude squared. And so... At that point, once we realized that, you know, my attitude is, and, and by the way, Chip was a, a big skeptic of the of the ever interpretation when we started. He was trying to disprove it <laughs> when, we, when we came up with this point of view. So, 
you know, you can fight against it. You, you could say, well, why should I use this rational way of apportioning my credences? But, you know, at that point is the, the physicist in me kicks in and says, look, your theory is telling you something. That thing fits all the experiments we've ever done. Why not just, you know, accept that and, and work on the interesting problems? Right. Uh, so how would the careful, careful Everettian put it then? I think the careful, yeah, the careful Everettian would say that the observer before the experiment gets done knows for sure that she will split into multiple copies, but there's some reflection principle, as David Wallace and other people have talked about. That observer knows that when she splits, there will be one sensible way to apportion her credences. So even before she splits, it just makes sense to sort of talk as if your probabilities uh, are going to be exactly the same formula, which is okay. this rule. If you know um, for sure that all of your future descendants should do one probability assignment, you should do that probability assignment. Right. Uh, so, th so there's a question I wonder about this. Uh, I mean, clearly there was a time, a large period of time when there were no observers in the universe. Mm -hmm. So, um, the Schrodinger equation, I assume, same then though, or no? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the point is that. The measurement, we, we don't like to talk about observers as physicists. You know, we don't like them to be, we talk about them all the time. We don't like them to be central in our physical theories. <laughs> <Yes>. And <laughs> the only place where you need to talk about observers in quantum mechanics is when they are actually observers, it turns out, right? right. Uh, if, if you don't have observers lying around, that's okay. You have the Schrodinger equation, and the universe just evolves, and there's no quantum measurement problem. Like, no one would, no one would have an issue. You just, yeah, you have a quantum state, and it evolves according to the Schrodinger equation. Why is that hard? And, and this is why I, you know, try as I might, I cannot work up any sympathy to the sort of quantum information, quantum Bayesian-based approaches to quantum mechanics, which really yeah. try to unask the question of what is really happening. And they say that, no, you should only ask what an agent will observe. And, you know, as a cosmologist, I want to ask things that have nothing to do with agents observing things. You know, I want to know what the universe was doing before the Big Bang or 10 to the 100 years in the future and so forth. And I don't see any good argument that my physical theory should be limited in that way. Right. No, yeah, okay. I think that's interesting. Sorry, Peter. Quantum Bayesianism, I'm not familiar with this. It, it applies to scenarios that don't have reasoners or, or, or observers in them? You know, it's, it's something where I, I really shouldn't, claim to say what it is because I have tried to understand it and failed. So I'm not going to explain it well, but I will, you know, one of the links we put up, I guess, should be to a panel discussion that I participated in at the World Science Festival earlier this year. And uh, it was Brian Green moderated a discussion about different approaches to quantum mechanics. And so I was defending many worlds. Shelley Goldstein of Rutgers was defending, or at least sort of explicating and advocating a uh, more Bohmian hidden variables approach. David Albert uh, was talking about the dynamical collapse theories, GRW, and so forth. And Rudinger Schock was defending this quantum Bayesianism point of view where okay. the whole point of quantum mechanics is to calculate the probabilities that an agent will observe one thing or another. It's sort of right. Copenhagen, you know, sort of yeah. legitimized. That's what they're trying to do. I, I think I've heard of this as sometimes, is, or maybe not, is this the Ithaca related to the... Well, yeah, there are people in Ithaca, David Merman, for example, uh, mm -hmm. and Cornell is one of the uh, people pushing this. And, you know, I, I, we, the, the philosophers there and the physicist, me, were all, like, we just couldn't wrap our brains around it. Like, we, we literally asked him, you know, okay, just classically, if I flip <laughs> a coin and I, I don't look to see whether it's heads or tails, 
is there a truth about whether it's heads or tails? And you know, he seemed to think that was a trick question that he shouldn't be forced <laughs> to answer. Uh, so I don't know what to say. About okay. that. I'm sure it's more respectable than making it sound, which is what I'm saying right now. But I just have no. No, uh, I think yeah, I think it's basically a like Copenhagen interpretation, it's particularly uh, their take on philosophy of science, which. You know, you get these kind of view that the job of science is not to describe reality in its most fundamental right. state, but to say what we can say about reality, which is, you know, includes us in the picture necessarily if you want to do any physics at all, because it's all about yeah. what we would measure, what we would see. And that does seem to really shackle you in a way, uh, which, you know, typically if you're a phys physics, you want a physicist, you're thinking about the cases where people should be irrelevant or observers of any kind should be irrelevant. Yeah, you know, I think that there was, there's never been an 11-year-old girl who got excited by the prospect of someday predicting the outcome of uh, where the <laughs> photons will land on some CCD camera. You know, you get excited yeah. by thinking about black holes and the Big Bang and what's actually happening out there in the universe. Right, <laughs> exactly. So, so let me ask you about this um, locality stuff, uh, because this is the rumor that I, and I don't know if I, well, but let me ask you about this. So I think typically, you know, uh, if you if you take... I, I'm someone who thinks that what the what Bell's theorem and what the results that come out of that work is, is that non-locality is serious. That we that right. it's not about hidden variables so much as about locality, um, about separationalness or something like that, and that yep. that puts that into a very um, tricky spot. But then I start thinking, but if you're a many worlds person, um, I guess the the way to ask the question would be, why would you expect that uh, the non-locality would be a feature of the world rather than of, I guess you could call it outcome, the outcome space. Um, so you know the way that the 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 observations of these measurements come maybe maybe something that looks like non-local. But why, if you're really into the many worlds interpretation, why should you expect that that is really a feature of the you know the particles themselves? Yeah, I think you know this is a, it's a very good issue. I think the one that requires some uh, deeper thinking in it, in part because our intuitions are failing us here once again. And uh, just to throw one thing out there, Tim Maudlin recently uh, published an article, which you can find in the archive, about what John Bell actually thought. Yeah, and what Bell did. That's a great article. What Bell article. did, right. Yeah. That's right. And what Einstein thought. And one of his points was that <laughs> what bugged Einstein was not indeterminism. Einstein couldn't have cared less about indeterminism. What he, what bugged him was right. non-locality. Right. And I think that many philosophers understand this and many physicists don't. I, literally just today I read you know, a, a statement by a physicist saying that Einstein just couldn't handle the God playing dice. He didn't like the indeterminism. Yeah. But it was really the non-locality that bugged him. If you and read that like is, all that stuff, it's it's like obviously clear that that's yeah. the thing that's bothering. But no, it has read that stuff. I mean, no, no physicist has read <laughs> Einstein on this. We just talk about our little mottos. Um, <laughs> so yeah, and and so well, at a slightly more sophisticated level, within the world of Everettians, within people who believe in the many worlds interpretation, ask them if it's a local theory or not. You right. get a smorgasbord of different answers. Uh, yeah, to me, the answer is just no. Yeah, no. I mean, Bell proved that quantum mechanics, in some sense, is just not local. And that's okay. That's that's right. quantum mechanics for you. That's something, in fact, I would there, therefore say that the challenge is the other way around. I think maybe this is what you're getting at. The challenge right. is, given that quantum mechanics is so obviously not local, <laughs> why do we think that it's kind of local, that the world is sort of, you know, that I can't bang a drum here and you can hear it? a billion light years away instantaneously. Right. Um, 
So I would say that that's the interesting thing to do. The interesting project is to show how local physics emerges from the wave function in Hilbert space, and that's something worth doing. And physicists also get it even more confused because they use the word non they use the word locality to mean two similar sounding but different things. Right. One is the locality of the description, you know, the kinematic phase space or whatever, it's state space in quantum mechanics. Uh, and that's what's manifestly non-local, right? I mean, that's you, you, there, things can be entangled. Right. But they make the point, which I think is correct, that the laws of physics, that the Hamiltonian that acts on that uh, state space is a field theory to a very good approximation. It's the quantum field theory where influences move locally through space, slower than the speed of light. Right. Um, and if you go into a particle physics group and you use the word locality, that's what they mean. They mean, you know, propag propagation of signals outside the light cone. And the Hamiltonian is a quantum field theory, not some integral over space 20 times or something like that. Right. And they, they talk about non-local generalizations of field theory also. So, the, you know, the claims that quantum mechanics is non-local, they get confused when they're talking about that. But... Then you go to quantum gravity and you realize that, you know, quantum field theory is not the be-all and end-all, that quantum gravity is probably not local in the good old particle physics sense, that uh, it's a local field theory. It's probably not a local field theory. So by that point, you know, locality is just uh, about as useful as temperature and density and heat and other very obvious approximations to the true underlying reality. I think that's okay. I think that's okay too, but but why not why, – why, what would rule out the – Interpretation that the non-locality is really related to you know self-locating uncertainty on the and the branches of the wave function or something like that. That really, uh, what we're that it's a, it's an it's um it's a product of what we see rather than the way the world. I mean, so how do you connect the two up? If you're a many worlds person, then there's this issue I think about. Um, well, I'm not even sure what the right way of put this is, but why? Why suspect that uh, the outcomes match up to so what you observe matches up to what's going on? I guess is a really yeah. Low so I way, think that there, there, there is an issue that needs to be addressed here because I can't send signals faster than the speed of light, right. and there is something called relativity that is a pretty good approximation to how the world works. Uh, so I think that the right way to put the challenge to the Everettians is to say, you know, okay, I can entangle two photons. I can get a bell, a bell pair of photons. I can move them far away. I can observe one at, at one space-time event and observe another at another space-time event. And according to the principles of relativity, depending on what coordinate system I use in space-time, one can yeah. be observed first and the other could be observed first. But you're telling me that there's really a quantum state that branches unitarily and so forth. So when yes. did the branching really occur? Did it happen over there or did it happen over there? Yeah. I think that's a challenge. I think that the answer, to the, I, I can't fill in the complete details to the answer, uh, but the kind of answer you're going to get is it doesn't matter. <laughs> the kind of answer you're going to get is the point of relativity is more than one description of the world, each of which are equally good. So it's not that it, you need to answer which happened first, that there's one description of the world, the evolution of the wave function in one reference frame in which one thing happened first. There's a, an infinite number of other descriptions of the world, and in some of them the other one happened first, and all I need to do is show they're compatible with each other. And I think that's you know the kind of thing that uh, relativity is good at doing, you know? Uh, yeah. The independence of reference frame on the actual observable phenomena. So I think you know that's something to be done. But 
the the mistake is to sort of once again reify this idea that there's one description of the wave function and one moment when the branching happens and that's what relativity right. says is false that there's one wave function and it evolves but there's a million ways to slice it uh, to give it a whole description of the world uh, Richard would you mind if I took things in a slightly different direction or, or please go ahead yes yes so um, I wanted to ask you about what uh, Sean what your best hunch or bet is about what in the the non-emergent fundamental base so, so right. you said that you don't think or you're not going to bet that locality is down in there yeah. or that the directionality of time but I, right. but I'm wonder, I'm wondering what you think is in there and, and specifically I'm wondering what you think of proposals that down there you're going to find math and, uh, and maybe <laughs> consciousness. Yeah, I think that's a little silly. Um, I don't know what it means. So again, silly I'm not for both or, or silly for consciousness. Oh, sorry for consciousness. Sorry, I didn't. I didn't hear that part. I was just thinking about the the foundational physics all being math. Um, uh, consciousness. Yeah, that's silly too. Yeah, now that I think about it. Uh, <laughs> well, why'd you have you to know, think about it for a second? <laughs> I, well, I want to. I want to be fair. So yeah, it took me at least a second to think about that. I think that you know. My guess is that it's a quantum state in Hilbert space. Um, but doesn't isn't that mathy? Math is what we use to describe it. I mean, if I have two apples, I can say that I have two apples, and that's twice as many apples as if I have one apple. But I think that the apples are apples. They're not math. They're apples. So the Hilbert the space is, is, a, is a description, though, right? I mean, Hilbert space itself, or no, Hilbert space is real. You know. I, that's where I begin to think that the philosophical questions are uninteresting. I think that the universe is real. Mm -hmm. My best description of it is as a quantum state evolving in Hilbert space. Is the Hilbert space it evolves in real? You know, are the places where it doesn't get to in its evolution real? Uh, is the Hamiltonian real? Eh, you know, it's not that, real in the yeah. same way that the apples are real. You can call it real if you want. I'm, not, I'm kind of not going to... I'm not convinced that taking a stance on those questions improves my understanding one way or the other. I do, by the way, let me get on the, on the so as I don't sound too uh, much like I think all the answers are settled, I honestly don't know, even if I'm right, that the most likely future description of the world is a quantum state in Hilbert space, whether time is emergent or fundamental. Mm -hmm. um, there's... To, even, even if quantum mechanics is true in a completely unchanged form a million years from now and is the right description of reality, there's still a choice. Is, is, the, is the world psi of t, the quantum state evolving in time, obeying Schrodinger's equation, or is it just psi, period? Right. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I'm a little agnostic on that question. I, I, I can see arguments either way. Um, and I don't know... So I think that's worth thinking about. So what would happen if it were just psi? I mean, then, then nothing happens. Yeah. Or how does how does how do things happen? If it's time, is, time is emergent. So <laughs> the 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 timeless point of view uh, advocates would say the miracle of quantum mechanics is that the quantum state can be written as a superposition. So you have one quantum state, and it's it's not evolving in time. It's just the whole quantum state for the whole universe. Period. But I can factorize the quantum state into, uh, or the, the Hilbert space into a clock and the rest of the universe, 
Mm-hmm. And there, in the actual quantum state of the universe, I can write it as a superposition of the clock reads this, and the rest of the universe is doing that. The clock reads a different thing. The rest of the universe is doing that. And you can actually show, Don Page and, and Bill Wooters did this back in the 1980s, that if you have a Hamiltonian and the uh, your wave function is just stationary, not evolving Hamiltonian, you can sort of separate it out so the clock and the rest of the universe both obey equations of motion as if they are changing in time. Mm. And what the time evolution is actually, in the real, in reality, in their point of view, is just a set of correlations between what the clock output is, what the clock reading is, and what the rest of the universe is doing. So plausible. I mean, it's not. It, it's a little. It worries me. I have questions about it. It's not my first guess as to what's really going on. But the attitude would be. Time is just what clocks read, and clock readings are just there in the quantum state, and you don't need any true, real, fundamental time evolution in the description of the world. Scary. Mm-hmm. I know, <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, so wow, so that's, that's some, some serious... Um, so, then the, so then you have just the wave function that can be parsed in different ways and treated as though it were evolving, but you have really just a static, non-evolving thing. That's right, and Page would go further than that. Uh, Don Page, he would would argue that that is the only, but any quantum mechanical wave function. He can take any wave function that you think is evolving and rewrite it as something that is not evolving, and that's the right way to think about it. Uh, So, and uh, you know... Interesting. Yeah, I don't know... Wins. I'm open-minded about these things. Consciousness, yeah, I'm, I'm much more straightforward about consciousness. I think that that is, you know, being conscious is like being wet. It's a property that things may or may not have, and yes. it's nowhere to be found in the fundamental description of nature. Nowhere to be found. Okay, that's interesting. Um, on a related issue, uh, what is the likelihood that the brain is doing something that involves quantum mechanics? Bes- besi- I mean, not besides the obvious point that, you know, it's made out of, Particles right. doing quantum mechanical stuff, but yeah, you know, the you obvious know. point is worth remembering, right? That you know, the brain is governed by quantum mechanics. I guess the real question is, well, there's, there's many real questions. The slightly more down-to-earth question is, do phenomena of entanglement play a crucial role in how the brain works? That's a, right. a very physics question. Apparently, entanglement plays an important role in uh, photosynthesis, for example. Photosynthesis. So there's yeah. no reason, or smell, arguably, people have made that point. So uh-huh. why not? Cognition, um, and yeah, that's I'm perfectly open to that. It's it, you know, there's reasons to be skeptical of it. The brain is a warm, messy, wet place, and it's hard to maintain quantum coherence and entanglement. Right, um, and especially if any... about decoherence and the time scale at which that happens and going on in the brain. And so yeah, forth. you know the if you if you just plug in numbers naively, the the any thing in the brain should become decoherent faster than a zeptosecond or something like that, so it's yeah. hard to imagine, but you can, you can, you can shield things, apparently. Um, is there any deeper connection between how we should think about consciousness and how we should think about quantum mechanics? I, I really doubt it. I'd yeah. like to quote Scott Aronson on this, which is, he says that, you know, apparently <laughs> the argument is that quantum mechanics is confusing and consciousness is confusing, so maybe they're the same thing. <laughs> I heard that but, joke from Dave Chalmers, but yeah, that joke yeah, is okay. around. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. I, 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 How much I, of this, though, is because you're an Everettian? I mean... Yeah, um, probably a lot of it. I mean, I think that, um, 
if I well, if I were a dynamical collapse person, I would be it would be just as bad. You know, I'm a physicalist at heart. Yeah. I think that there's just uh, it's a much simpler description of the world. You know, and I do think that this is the there's this great divide. You know, between the ontologies that I think of as alive and lawful. You know, is the world uh, fundamentally made of both physical things and something different, something that is fundamentally separate. Or is it really just stuff obeying the laws of physics? And, you know, actually, let me put in a good word for someone I disagree with about everything, who is Tom Nagel. Uh -huh. uh, you know, he wrote this book, Mind and Cosmos, and he got a lot yeah. of abuse, saying yeah. that, you know, Darwin is wrong, et cetera, et cetera. And, of course, I think that much of the abuse I'm sympathetic to, I think that Nagel is wrong. I think Darwin was right. I think that, you know, the materialist point of view of the world is the right one. But I think that Nagel appreciates that some of the fuzzier, hand-wavy claims that are made about consciousness if you're willing to really change the fundamental laws of physics. Yeah. And so his attitude is, and I'm willing to fundamentally change the, these laws of physics, and my attitude is you shouldn't be. But at least he, you know, gets, I think, correctly that if you're going to start saying that um, evolution is teleological or there's something truly fundamentally different about consciousness than there is about other states of being, then that you can't only make those statements at the level of living organisms. They need yes. to be reflected in the underlying laws of physics, and That's right. say, and they're clearly not. And he would say, and well, therefore, yeah. No, I agree with you. That is what I. I glad you said that because I think Nagel, you know, has got a lot of flack over this, and you know, there's reasons for that because you know he doesn't approach the issue in the way you just said it. He has this rather, you know, um, confrontational title: why it's almost right. certainly false. <laughs> <laughs> and then he goes on to give this hand-waving teleological stuff. But I, yeah. I think you're right, though, that the issue is how are you really prepared to change the fundamental laws of physics? Because this is what anthropic thinking always comes down to, I think, is that you have to build it in at such a fine ultimate yeah. level. It just seems totally implausible that that's the way it would be put together. Yeah, and so I think David Chalmers, for example, is you know way more respectable than average on these issues among yeah. people who want to hold this, and he'll say, you know, yeah, apparently if what I want to believe is true, then an electron has a little bit of consciousness. Right. <laughs> and uh, I just want to say, and therefore you shouldn't believe what you believe is true because an electron doesn't have <laughs> consciousness at all. And he says, well, yeah, maybe that's a little bit. Well, um, see, I think that's interesting, though, because it comes back to what we were talking about earlier about the principle of sufficient reason and where you have to stop demanding because someone like Dave is going to say, look, I want an explanation for why this bit of brain is right. like seeing red and that bit of brain is like see feeling pain. And, you know, if you really believe explanation, then he says, I'm going to I'm going to insert it as a fundamental. And I'm sympathetic to the idea that in the history of physics, this kind of happened with fields. You know, people said those aren't physical things now. They're obviously right. physical things. So there is some precedent, whatever. But um, it's a pretty drastic move. I, I, I it's totally a very, very, very <laughs> drastic move. And yes. I, you know, I agree with you that it's a move one can <laughs> contemplate mating, making. And I think that the, the the reasons put forward for taking it seriously do not nearly rise to the standard of the drasticness of the move. Exactly. Yeah. Um, it did, however, lead to a very uh, amusing personal thing for me because I organized uh, this workshop in Stockbridge, Massachusetts on moving naturalism forward. Yes, I've seen the videos from that. Yeah, and so, and, and we put all the videos online, we're trying to organize them a little bit, but it, at, at some point we said disparaging things about Nagel's 
anti-Darwin <laughs> stance. And so this actually made it to the front cover of the Weekly Standard. You know the Weekly oh, Standard, no. this conservative rag? Yeah. Oh, so yeah. there's an image on the front cover of Thomas Nagel being burned at the stake Holy by shit. various hooded, <laughs> faceless men with torches. Of and which you were supposed to be one? <laughs> yes, that was supposed to be us. That was the Moving Naturalism Forward workshop. So I am portrayed on the cover of Weekly Standard as a hoodless, uh, a faceless, hooded man burning someone at the stake because, you know, wow. that's just how we naturalists roll. We burn that's how we stake. roll, exactly. You know, if you don't believe in our ontology, then run it's for like the hills. It's like you said, committed to the flames. If you don't exactly. get to burn people at the stake, what's the point of being a naturalist? <laughs> I've asked myself that, yes. <laughs> Before, I, we're running out of time, but can I just yeah. ask one question that's related to the mini worlds thing? So I've been hearing a lot of rumors about this mini interacting worlds yes. stuff. Uh, is this something that you Everettians like, or as far as I can tell, it's not Everetti? I'm not really confused about the many interacting worlds. Um, yeah, I, I honestly cannot. I'm not knowledgeable enough to say anything. Uh, Chip Sabins, my collaborator, uh, has his own version of exactly that kind of thing, where you you recover the predictions of quantum mechanics uh, by superimposing many classical worlds. Right. Um, he he wasn't clever enough to have a press release about it, so therefore you did <laughs> not hear about it. Uh, but yeah, I got a lot of journalists uh, emailing me saying, could you please explain this to me? Um, I don't know, you know, good for them, give it a try. I'm not motivated to spend time thinking about that because I am a happy Everetti and I think that Everett works fine. Right. Uh, I'm much more interested in figuring out what the Hamiltonian of the universe is and how semi-classical realms arise and so forth than I am in coming up with new interpretations of quantum mechanics. So you, you got to bet, right? You can't do everything in the world. You have right. to <laughs> when it comes to uh, doing research. You can't read everybody's papers. So yeah, that's just not something I'm going to be an expert on unless unless if they solve some wonderful problems and keep doing it and, and take over the world, then I will sheepishly uh, try to catch up. <laughs> cool. And then one final question. The the famous story that's going around about the, dro the oil, the drop of oil on... Um, uh on a liquid reproducing some of quantum mechanical effects. Have you read this stuff at all? Oh, yeah. That's just silly. I mean, that's, okay. <laughs> you know, the same equations can describe more than one physical system. So they, the equations of Bohmian mechanics can be mimicked by some fluid dynamics problem. Exactly. And they do the fluid, and it does what the equation said it would do. But you could any computer simulation of the same equations would tell you the same thing. I mean, it's nice to see. We're not learning anything about quantum mechanics that way, though. Excellent. All That's right. Point of view. Yes. Well, <laughs> gentlemen, I uh, need to roll. And yes. We're out of, of time. Yeah, I know. It's, we're out of time. And uh, I have so many more things to talk about, but we've got to call it quits. Thanks so much, Sean, for coming on. Thank you very much. You've been terrific. My pleasure. Thank you, Pete. Thank you, Richard.
Mind.